This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I am Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. And welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. So today's guest, I'm very excited about today's guest because she is tagged as the modern philosopher. So we're going to learn a few things about philosophy today and leadership. You know, she started, she earned a master's of science degree in organizational change management and has dedicated the last nine years of her life studying practical philosophy. She has 20 years executive leadership experience with the New York Times, Citigroup, and AMC Networks. And today she works with business leaders who want to tackle their biggest challenges by teaching them how to think differently. I think that might be the definition of philosophy, but we'll find out. Discover new solutions and overcome obstacles. You can find her book, Wise Up at Work, Manage with Calm, Navigate Obstacles, Lead the Way, on Amazon, and I'll put the link to her book in the description of this podcast. And you can also subscribe to her free monthly newsletter by the na- same name, Wise Up at Work. Oh, and I, I'm going to throw in a spoiler alert here because this philosopher is going to talk to us today about the name of my company, Staterius. And she was schooling me on this at one point, and uh, I love the story. So you're going to hear about that eventually. So I want you to please welcome Christina. The Giacomo. Hi there, Christina. Hey, Dr. Gary. I'm so happy to be here. I can't wait to nerd out with you about leadership and philosophy and kind of dig into a little bit of some of the background and, and history that I found around the name of your company, which is going to be really cool. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing that. So let's start by sharing a little bit about your background, Christina. Talk a little about how your experience as a leader and what brought you to this idea of philosophy. So as you mentioned, I've got 20 years of experience in the working world, in the corporate world as a rank and file employee, as a manager, as a leader, as an executive, department builder. And in the 20 years of experience that I had, I've seen a lot of things. I've seen colleagues melt down. I've seen entire teams revolt. (laughs) I've seen, you know, I've just seen a lot. And at some point I became really passionate about helping people through the things that they were going through in their work. Now I did that through my role as a manager and as an executive, it just became more of a calling for me that I wanted to be on this mission to create great workplaces. And so that's how I came to study organizational change management, because that's really what that discipline is all about. 
And in addition, I was also as a personal pursuit studying and practicing philosophy. I was taking adult education courses in philosophy. And what I started to do was practice some of the principles that I was learning in philosophy school and how to handle management challenges. I wasn't necessarily telling anyone that I was doing this. It just was something that I found really helpful. And I started to actually be a better manager. I had employees telling me that I was the best boss they ever had. I started to come up with better ideas. I built an entire department at the New York Times that had never existed before, which ended up ushering in a whole new competency for the organization and getting a lot of incredible results. And I just thrived under practicing and applying philosophy in the workplace for myself. And then at some point I decided this is something I wanna do dedicated 100% is to go out there with a message and a practice and a competency around teaching people how to apply philosophy in the workplace so that they can be better leaders or they can have a seamless and easy work experience to help organizations define what their existence is. It just is so applicable in so many ways. So that's how I landed on that. Yeah. So when you when you talk about application of philosophy and you started doing this and learning about it before you got out of the corporate world, right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So talk a little bit about how early on, how how you started to apply that this idea of philosophy and how you engaged people as you learned it. And then in the last nine or 10 years, how you've evolved through that, you know, because we do things differently when we're 20 than we do when we're 50, right? Well, you wouldn't know. But anyway, take my word for it. But we also do things early in a career different than we do later in the career, not just based on position, but based on, well, I think I'm going to use your phrase, wisdom never fails. You you like that phrase. I read it on your LinkedIn, it, wisdom never fails. So how did you become wise at a young age to be able to apply philosophy to the work that you were doing? You keep thinking I'm a lot younger than I really am, which is so hilarious to me because, you know, so that's fine. But I mean, I really came upon philosophy, I would say, when I was in my mid 30s, uh, late 30s. And at first, I was learning things from the Stoics, which the Stoics are really, they're a gateway philosophy. They're an excellent introduction to how to use philosophy in in the real in the real world and you know the stoics were really all about desiring outcomes that you can control and being really observant of the thoughts that you have about things and the notion that your thoughts shape the perception of your reality so when i was struggling in my work experiences where whether i was having a actually a conflict with a colleague, I was using stoicism and those ideas to take a step back and examine the ideas that I was having about this other person, questioning whether they were actually true or based in reality, and then just having an inquiry around that. And what ended up happening in that particular instance was I realized that some of my thoughts were based on my own worries and my own fears and my own 
feelings of territoriality around my role and that that's exactly what was going on. And so I ended up practicing philosophy to handle this tense relationship with a colleague and then was able to move past that and then establish a much better relationship with them. All because I did this work of observing my thoughts, which I learned from the Stoics. And that's just a, the very beginning. You talk about, you know, or you ask me about how I have evolved from that. Since then, I've brought in Western, Eastern traditions, you know, from Confucius to Lao Tzu to Indian traditions to Italian Renaissance traditions to transcendentalism. And what I do now is I have a process where I look at the challenges and the issues a business leader is facing or is an organization is facing. And I find the underlying principle or philosophy that would help to provide the framework to address that challenge. And then I teach that philosophy and that principle and then develop a way for them to be able to use it to solve that problem. I teach them how to use philosophy to address their challenges. So it's because in fact, that's what you did when you started, right? You, you had a problem. Exactly. With, with a colleague and you needed to find a way to work with that colleague in a more effective way. And you were searching for a way to do that. The thing that you said uh, a few minutes ago though, was you became aware of your thoughts. Okay. When you become aware, which is one of the key principles that we have is awareness. And once you become aware and understand there's this process of thought from an external perception to a filtering of that information based on beliefs, assumptions, and judgments, we create a response, both emotional and intellectual. And understanding the, the question, the one factual kind of question that struck me, and I, I said factual because a coaching question that we always ask is, so Christina, is, is what you just said the facts? What's, what's reality? What are the facts? And people realize quite often that they're making a lot of judgments. They're making a lot of assumptions. And just helping people with that realization, it sounds like you did that in your 30s and started down this path with this philosophy that helped you kind of get your head around the idea of, like you said, becoming aware of our thoughts. That's an awakening, isn't it? Absolutely. To me, there was no bigger revelation than understanding and knowing myself. And I think that's true for a lot of people. And that's what philosophy does. That's its role in our lives is to give us the ideas and concepts so that we develop a knowledge of self that's, that's true and good. The reason why I love using philosophy as a proxy for achievement and as a method for achievement is it's really nice to sit down with a business leader and have a conversation around a passage from Aristotle or a passage from Socrates, because no one's going to argue with Aristotle. No one's going to argue with Socrates, right? So there's a certain gravitas. And oh, I, they can try. <laughs> they can try. Um, but there's something really eloquent and beautiful in a lot of these teachings that when you sit down with someone and say, what, would, what do you make of this? The conversation then becomes about what this philosopher said. And it removes all judgment or all worries about my opinion. You know, Socrates is just the other person in the room. And 
I've just found that using philosophy is an incredible tool to get people the, the intellectual and the experiential door to someone's mind to open up. Share with me, if you can, a couple of your favorite quotes that you like to use or philosophies that you like to share. You're working with, a, I'm a business leader, you know, treat me, treat, treat me like a business leader. And I'm struggling with some problems or something, regardless of what that is, what kinds of things do you tend to grab onto in your, in your toolbox and say, eh, Gary, you might want to think about this or you might want to ask, because if it's Socrates, you might want to ask yourself this question. Mm-hmm. Do you have any favorites? So there's two that are, sometimes they're just like, they appear. I know that I, I hope this doesn't sound crazy, but sometimes like the philosophers appear and they're like this one, this one. No, that's yeah. So, so right now Voltaire and Socrates are appearing and one of my favorite practices, and I do this, I practice this, by the way, I don't teach anything that I've never practiced myself and experienced myself. I've been given feedback that this is also a favorite practice from my, from my clients. And that is Socrates is famous for saying, I know that I know not. And that's what makes me a wise man. He was a bit sassy and kind of a pain in the ass, actually, to a lot of people in Athens because he was going around trying to prove who was the wisest person in Athens. He realized through his process that in order to be a wise person, you can't walk around saying that you know everything. So knowing that this is one of his teachings, how do you practice? I know that I know not. And that is simply don't know everything. So I challenge leaders to spend a week in not knowing. That could take the form of being in a meeting with their team and they're getting barraged with questions and their responses, I don't know, and being okay with it. Or I don't know, why don't you guys work on that and noodle on that? You don't need me. Or it's just a matter of keeping an open mind. But the Socratic I know not is one of the most powerful practices. And then the second philosophy. Before you get off that, hold on to that one. No, no, no. That's good because the the strength of a team is based on people's, people's talents and strengths and what they bring to the table and being vulnerable enough to be able to admit what they don't know. Because if they can't tell what they don't know and having a military experience People know that if, if you have to depend on each other, you have to have each other's back. And if you don't, somebody's going to die. And if somebody can't do their job, they have to be able to say to the team, I'm not capable of doing this. And that requires vulnerability. I don't know. So when I was uh, working in manufacturing for 10 years, I had seven different jobs in 10 or 11 years because I was in, in these turnaround uh, departments. I go into a department. I kind of fell into this after a couple of men, you're really good at this. Let's have you f- turn around another department. I didn't know I was training for working with companies like I do today, but that's what I was training for. But to to your point, I was the least knowledgeable person in the room almost all the time because in a manufacturing organization, the average tenure with some of these departments was 17, 20 years average. And I was walking in with, you know, 10 minutes. And those were my favorite three words. So people say, well, Gary, what what do we do? And I'm like, I don't know. What did you do last time? Did it work? Do you think it'll work this time? Tell me a little bit about the fact. I would just ask a bunch of questions, but the first thing out of my mouth, just like you said, I don't know. 
And leaders don't often realize how powerful that is, right? Yeah. So that's and great stuff. I don't know. For leaders to foster a culture of inquiry, like a culture of just, you know, start a meeting with a question or making it safe for people to say, I don't know. The other result from practicing I don't know that's also really important to point out is when you say I don't know, you open up the possibility for new ideas and new information to come up. Because if you have already decided that you know, any alternative, any innovative way of looking at something is completely limited and blocked off. Because your mind immediately is like, okay, great, I've got the answer, I'm going to move on. But if you stay in this space of not knowing, you never know what you're going to see, what you're, what connections you're going to make, what sort of pattern recognition appears. And you could miss a really great idea or innovation if you're constantly like, oh, I know the answer. So just wanted to share that too. That's great. Now, when when the leader is always given all the answers and it's based on one perspective and it's the funny quote that we always like to say, Christina, if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. Right. Exactly. You know, and it doesn't build a relationship. It doesn't help people think. And when you say ask, you know, we, we say the first level of coaching is just learning to ask questions instead of answering questions. People get into the habit of answering questions. Let's get into the habit of asking questions. So like a, a, a culture of inquiry, I think is what you, how you put it. I exactly. really like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what's the second one? So the second one is Voltaire. He's another sassy, sassy philosopher. He had a bit of a smart mouth, but a lot of really great ideas. And one of the things that he expounded on was this notion of uncertainty. He said, doubt is an unpleasant condition but certainty is absurd. So essentially, you know, what he's saying here is, look, I know that it really sucks to be in doubt and to be in a place of uncertainty, but to be completely 100% certain is absurd. You can't be 100% certain about anything. And it's sort of related to, it's sort of related to Socrates, but the thing what Voltaire was trying to get at is to be comfortable with uncertainty. It's an unpleasant condition, but it's not, you know, it, you're not going to fall apart, right? Certainty is not the way. It's absurd. It's absurd thinking. So when I talk about Voltaire and this notion with, with leaders, especially ones where, where like that are really very metrics and outcome driven, the ones that are like the 0.01% click through rate just basically derails like the, their project or it's a, the campaign's a failure. I use Voltaire as a way to open up a dialogue around what is, what can you be certain of? What are you not uncertain? What are you uncertain of? What's your comfortability level with certainty? And a lot of time or uncertainty. And a lot of times they're more comfortable or they get more comfortable with uncertainty. When you do that, you're a little bit more comfortable with how people solve problems. You're a little bit more comfortable in exploring and taking risks. And that's, again, where the magic and the innovation and the new ideas and change comes from. So I like to use Voltaire a lot to talk about 
being comfortable with uncertainty. So you, you said his, uh, your phrase was certainty is absurd. Certainty is absurd. It, it reminded me of, uh, I used to do a lot in leadership oxymorons. And one of the oxymorons that I like to use all the time is confident doubt. And, you know, I'm, I'm very confident most of the time. And, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of what, that's the feeling I get when you talk about certainty is, is absurd. It's, uh, and it's, it's, it's so true. And as leaders, so I'm going to go back to uh, Jim Collins stuff on good to great. I mentioned this often in my podcast because the number one value that I look for with CEOs that I work with is humility. And humility is shown by having confident doubt. It's by having, I would say, qualified certainty. You know, I'm absolutely certain most of the time. You know, that's qualified certainty, right? So that's a great, it's a great philosophy to have that conversation. So I, I love that. That's really good stuff. So people can start to apply some of that. I really like it. But we need to hear about the name of my company. Because you mentioned this, you you promised me that you were going to come on this podcast and you were going to share with me the, 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 some of the uh, history, some of the background of the word staterius, which is the Latin for my, the name of my company, which I understood to mean to stand firm or to be balanced, okay, are the definitions that I came up with. But you, you said you have a whole history of this. So I fill, fill us in. I, my listeners have just been waiting for this moment. And so have I. So fill us in, Christina. I'm so excited. So nothing brings me joy than to find the philosophical nugget in someone's work, right? Whether it's the, you know, either their category, the, the name of your company or a leadership principle. Like I like to do this with a lot of people, even with my clients. And I will trace back to an original philosophy or philosopher and when I do that, a lot of times people find new inspiration in their work when they hear sort of the historical background or philosophical principle behind something that they experience. Okay, okay, okay. Day. You've gotten through all the title okay. and, and so, you know, let's get so, to the story. I want to hear the story. <laughs> so, so, well, you know, with you, I hit the mother load. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So- Staterius also has definitions of even-mindedness, calm, and steady. And I, when I saw, saw Staterius, I was like, that's Latin. Immediately, I knew it was Latin. So I was like, okay, this could be interesting. So I took a look at some of the variations of Staterius and found a word called Stateri, which commonly means a location means being in a location or state, but not rigidly so. So then I started to take a closer look at Stateri and found a reference to that word from a translation done by John Bingham in 1623. So in the 1600s, this guy, John Bingham, did a translation of Xenophon's Anabasis, and that's where I got really excited because I recognized who Xenophon was. And here's where we get into a little bit of history and story. Xenophon was born in 430 BC. He was an Athenian, a historian, a philosopher, and a soldier. 
So back then you could be a shoemaker and a philosopher. You could be, you know, everyone was multiple things and philosophy was a part of everyday life. He was a student and a devotee of Socrates. His philosophical education was Socratic, but at around 20, like in his mid twenties, his best friend, Bothius came to him and said, Hey, I've decided I'm going to be a Greek mercenary in this Persian war. There's this guy, Cyrus the Younger, who's trying to overthrow his brother, Artaxerxes in Persia. Let's go fight in this war. So Xenophon is like, okay, I've got nothing better to do. And I've always been interested in being, you know, being more soldier-like. So yeah, I'll go get involved in this Persian family drama. So he becomes part of this very famous Greek army called the 10,000. And the 10,000 launched this massive campaign against this Persian ruler. And it was a spectacular failure. What happened was they got defeated. And got their ass that, kicked is what you're yeah. saying, I think. Yeah, okay. They got right. their ass kicked. Okay. Um, and because uh, Artaxerxes was really smart and he brought in some other armies and it was really, it was, you know, it was bad. But here's where Xenophon rose to the occasion because the army needed to retreat. And not only did they need to retreat with Artaxerxes on their tail, they needed to retreat through incredibly hostile territory through Mesopotamia and all the way through Armenia in order to get home. And Xenophon was actually voted to be the commander of the army in its retreat. He was that beloved. So at 30 years old, he was the commander of an army of about 8,000 men to lead them through this retreat. More like their morale was low, they were wounded. And not only that, but they had to travel. They were getting attacked on all sides from, you know, roving armies, Persians, Spartans. And they had to go through Armenia. And on top of that, it was wintertime in Armenia. So I've seen Gladiator. I've seen like those old, you know, Spartacus movies, they didn't really wear much many clothes in like the Greek army. And it's wintertime and he had to lead them through snow fields. This is where it gets even more interesting. This is oh, where- Cause I, th I figured what, how much leadership does it take to say, run away? <laughs> okay, go ahead. But that's the thing, Gary, that's a perception that you, that you have because- There you go. He actually is the inventor of rear guard fighting. He invented mm. fainting and flanking maneuvers. And a noted military historian called Theodore Dodge said that no general ever possessed a grander moral ascendant over his men and none ever worked for the safety of his soldiers with greater ardor or to better effect. And so he was the one who was all about not leading from the front, but leading from behind. 
leading from back because behind was where the enemy behind was. was where the enemy was and not and not calling not like making sure seeing all the angles taking care of his men and so when he returned he wanted to capture everything that he learned and the story of this retreat and that's where his writings came in and he was considered this incredible storyteller that was persuasive and poetic and this man of action this was this was how he his teachings were received he told really great war stories like that was his thing but through it all his philosophy was about the model leader and his belief was that the model leader was the one who wins the willing obedience willing obedience of his followers through displaying a selfless devotion selfless devotion to cultivating their material and ethical prosperity he was about helping you know his soldiers helping people develop not only from just providing for their basic needs but developing their character and this is what he wrote about he wrote about humility modesty selflessness these were the great themes in anabasis and also in in another writing uh called cyrus uh the war and leadership and so he's just this amazing character that is the basis for the lineage of the name of your company and i pulled some of his most notable quotes for you because i really feel they're inspiring but perhaps can provide you with some inspiration too so give me give me two of those and maybe we'll also put it in the uh, some of the notes but i'd love to hear you know one or two of those uh, in wrapping up today because i it sounds like I, you know maybe i am the uh the, i'm channeling him you know through my work right <laughs> i guess you could say that i would i'd be honored to be channeling him based on what you're telling me so what what are a couple of his quotes so one is leaders must always set the highest standard in a summer campaign leaders must always endure their share of the sun and the heat and in winter the cold and the frost in all labors leaders must prove tireless if they want to enjoy the trust of their followers leading from the front leaders eat last you know that Simon Sinek talks about it's all about role modeling yeah it's all about role modeling so okay what give me another one here's another one he's so poetic i love him in my experience men who respond to good fortune with modesty and kindness are harder to find than those who face adversity with courage for in the very nature of things success tends to create pride and blindness in the hearts of men while suffering teaches them to be patient and strong well a lot of wisdom in that one isn't it yeah yeah i, I think i think we need to uh, wrap up on that one and uh recognize that uh these are these words 
And the, the beauty of philosophy is to get us to just think, to get us to think about who we are, what we stand for, what's important. Look at those principles that we've seen starting with him and before and uh, all through the philosophers of, like you're saying, Voltaire and Aristotle and Socrates and, and, and many others. So as the modern philosopher, do you have a final comment, thought, idea that you'd like to share with my listeners today? So I just want to say to everyone that being wise is innate, but acting wise is a skill. Wisdom is there for you at all times. It's available to you at any time. You already have it. And all you have to do is just bring it forth and the world will be better for it. Thank you, Gary. Uh, thanks, Christina. I, I, I love that. That's great. We can all learn from that. This is Dr. Gary making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Thank you once again for listening to Leading from the Front and have a great day. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.